Hello, and welcome back to Hearsay, a joint project between Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter, and CJSW 90.9 FM, where University of Calgary law students discuss a variety of legal topics with a variety of professionals in the field. We'd like to emphasize that the information you hear today is legal information and not legal advice, as we are law students and not lawyers. This podcast is purely for educational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. My name is Kira, and I'll be one of your hosts for this episode. I'm here with my co-host, Amanda. Today, we are joined with Dr. Sarah Begg to explore bail reform in Canada. Sarah is a Justice of the Peace at the Alberta Court of Justice in Calgary. As if this isn't busy enough, she is also a sessional instructor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us. We are thrilled to have you with us today. It's my pleasure. In the spirit of reconciliation, we would first like to acknowledge that hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kainai, Pekani, and Siksika, as well as the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3 within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. Some of our listeners may already be familiar with the concept of bail reform. The federal government recently proposed changes to Canada's bail system. This would make it harder for those accused of certain offenses to be released on bail. But for those who haven't been following the news, let's start with the foundational questions. When someone is charged with an offense under the criminal code, what is the first thing that happens to them? So when a person's charged with an offense, uh, a summons or a warrant issues, which is reviewed and signed by someone like myself, a justice of the peace, If a summons issues, then they're going to receive a piece of paper in the mail, essentially, which tells them when their court date is, and they'll show up for their first court appearance. If a warrant issues, uh, it's up to the justice of the peace whether or not to issue that as an endorsed or an unendorsed warrant. If the warrant is endorsed, then essentially what that means is that a police officer will locate the person for whom the warrant's been issued, and at that time they can either make a decision to release that person on a police release, which would be an appearance notice, meaning that essentially they have a court appearance that they need to attend, which is written on the piece of paper, in addition to certain conditions which might address any public safety concerns in relation to what they've been charged with. So, for example, they get arrested for stealing a chicken from Safeway, and they get a condition not to attend at that Safeway. If the police deem it necessary uh, in the case of an endorsed warrant, or if an unendorsed warrant is issued, then the person would be arrested and held in custody pending a bail hearing. So if a warrant is issued and until a justice of the peace either gives, you know, endorses it or doesn't endorse it, how long does it take? It could be in the case of a historic crime. Let's say someone comes to the police five years after they say that they've been assaulted. Uh, 
you know, it could take a very long time or it could be very quick. Someone could, there could be a domestic assault-ish situation where the person's charged and then arrested a couple of hours later. So it's a very variable timeline. But I mean, if someone has a warrant out for their arrest, it really depends. I mean, the police are obviously actively looking for people for whom there are warrants, but uh, sometimes they're difficult to locate. Thank you. So what is a release order and what is bail? So bail is, uh, in the case of a person who's been charged with an offense, if a person receives bail, that means that after they've been arrested, they're then released from custody pending their trial on those charges. And a release order would be the court order which dictates uh, the form of their release and any conditions that, as I referred to earlier when I was talking about a police release, any conditions that they might be released on, which are designed to ensure their attendance in court or protect, protect the public. Okay. So now that we have an introduction to bail, let's dive into the details of a release order. Are there cases where someone is not eligible for a release order? And if so, what are they? Uh, Well, there are are grounds for detention which are articulated under the criminal code. And it's up to the Crown to determine whether or not uh, they believe the person is releasable. If they think that the person is not releasable, then they would make an argument in front of the Justice of the Peace at the time of the bail hearing or or potentially another judicial decision maker, depending on where the bail hearing is being held, uh, either on the primary, it's called the primary ground. So basically the primary ground is about the fear that if the person was released from custody, they would not show up to court. On the secondary ground, which goes to the safety of the public or any victim of an offense, and the tertiary ground uh, to maintain confidence in the administration of justice. So really what that looks like is, you know, if if we did not, if we released this person on bail, would that cause the public to lose confidence in the bail system? Hey, that makes sense. And what are some reasons why a prosecutor might argue that an accused should be held in custody? Uh, well, the primary, secondary, or tertiary grounds, and really what goes into the arguments that they would make under one of those grounds would be, uh, there's, I mean, there's a number of considerations, including, for example, the circumstances of an arrest, the criminal record of the accused person. So, you know, in the case of the primary grounds going to, you know, is this person likely to attend court? If they have a long criminal record and they have a history of failing to attend court, then obviously that suggests that they should possibly be detained, uh, given that likelihood that they may not show up. Uh, The allegations, so in the case of someone who is accused of a crime, say a violent crime, and the circumstances of the offense are particularly egregious or concerning, that might be a consideration in terms of detention, whether or not they're currently already on a release order, which would suggest that potentially they should be detained. And other things would be, like, for example, whether they turn themselves in. Uh, That would be a reason why someone, you know, you might be more likely to release someone who you would have otherwise detained for fear that they wouldn't go to court. Uh, And then 
potentially the release plan that they could put together in terms of, you know, whether the concerns that the Crown or the court might have uh, in terms of any of the grounds could be addressed by that release plan. Quick question. So if an accused um, doesn't get a release order, they have to be detained, um, where do they go? They would go to, to remand. So that's a, that's a detention facility that is not for people who have been sentenced, like found guilty and sentenced of an offense. It's, it's really a, a holding place for people who are either awaiting a bail hearing or awaiting a trial because they were not released from custody. So let's say um, if, if some, an accused um, got sent to remand center and they just they have to stay there until their court date. Is that right? Well, once if they were detained by a justice of the peace, they could appeal that decision after 30 days. So if there's and if there's been a change in their circumstances from the time that they were denied bail, they could also have another bail hearing. So uh, let's say, for example, at the time that they were originally detained, the Crown had a very strong case, but then something came to light to reveal that the likelihood of conviction was very low then the lawyer representing that accused person could ask for another bail hearing and they may be released. Uh, if they were detained on the basis of you know, 15 charges that were before the court and five of them were the allegations were egregious and violent and then those charges were withdrawn, again, they may be released. So not every person who is detained would be detained until they had their trial. Uh, but they would be pending a bail review where they were found to be releasable. What might a judge or justice of the peace consider when determining whether an accused should be granted a release order? Well, I think importantly, uh, the, the section of the criminal code that relates to what we've been discussing, bail, is Section 515 of the Criminal Code. And Section 515.1 specifies that when an accused is charged with an offense, then the justice shall release that person uh, without conditions unless the prosecutor shows cause why the detention is justified. So the default of every bail hearing, uh, with, with limited exceptions, would be that the person would be released on the lowest form of release. So uh, it's really not for a justice of the peace to question the releasability of an individual unless the Crown shows cause, which would be under those grounds, primary, secondary, or tertiary that I previously referenced. So how often is that the Crowns um, present such grounds? A fair number of people who present for a bail hearing are being charged with reasonably minor offenses. Uh, like I referenced the stolen chicken from Safeway. So um, they are, you know, they're property crimes, which is certainly serious and the public has an interest in, in, its, in their property. But on the balance, given the presumption of innocence, it's not often that the Crown would seek to detain an individual like that unless it was a particularly egregious circumstance or there was a long history of this individual committing these types of crimes. So I think the majority of people, um, which would line up with Section 515.1, are released from custody and the Crown consents to their release. Because mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about practically, like 
the criminal code is huge. And if you're going to, like, I can't imagine the amount of work that, you know, the crowns have to bear if they, you know, if they're being pushed to challenge a lot of these, you know, in, in bail hearings. Like, they won't sleep at all. I mean, they can't sleep at all. We do bail 18 hours a day, so wow. every day, 365 days a year. Wow. That's unbelievable. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CJSW 90.9 FM. So with this understanding of bail and release orders, let's discuss bail rights and fairness. Why is it preferable for an accused to be released at the earliest reasonable opportunity? Well, I think that underlying that that idea is the fact that an, a person who's charged with a crime in Canada is presumed to be innocent until they've been proven guilty. And on that basis, uh, that individual should not be held in custody without, without reason. So, I, you know, on the basis of the fact that they have been charged with a crime, there's a justification to hold them for a bail hearing, which gives, you know, creates the opportunity to evaluate whether or not they can be released into the public safely. But uh, I think on that presumption of innocence, peace dictates that they're not held for an unreasonable period of time. And in, in the code, it specifies that uh, the magic number is 20, you know, 24 hours. They shouldn't be held for more than 24 hours or until a justice of the peace is available. And are there special considerations when it comes to Indigenous people or other vulnerable populations and bail? There are. So Section 493.2 of the Criminal Code statutorily requires uh, justices of the peace or other judicial decision makers to give particular attention to the circumstances of Aboriginal accused and accused who are members of a vulnerable population. So that would include... Uh, unhoused individuals, people suffering from mental illness, people suffering from substance use disorder. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a complete list, but those are some examples. And further, the Supreme Court of Canada has made it clear that gladue factors apply in the case of bail. So uh, the case of gladue, you may be familiar, is a sentencing case in Canada which requires courts when they're sentencing Indigenous people to consider background considerations about that, uh, about Indigenous people broadly, and that a particular Indigenous accused person, which relate to the effects of colonization or the residential school policy and the impact uh, that this has had on that particular Indigenous person. Uh, there was a case then called Ipili, which found that, that uh, those considerations are also relevant to an Indigenous person's bail hearing. And why are these special considerations important? Well, uh, because it's, it is the case that Indigenous people and other uh, members of vulnerable groups are overrepresented in, uh, in terms of incarcerated, incarceration. And uh, I think there's a recognition that these, you know, we want to try to correct for that overrepresentation. Uh, and additionally, there's a recognition that these people have been 
historically disadvantaged, disadvantaged in terms of their ability to receive bail. So to kind of ex- explain how that could happen, you know, a, ma- a person who, who is unhoused is going to find it difficult to comply with certain conditions that they may be released on. For example, uh, they might have a condition where they're supposed to report to a bail supervisor every Monday morning. So they're supposed to phone a, essentially it's a type of a probation officer who you check in with when you're released on bail. And you're supposed to call them every Monday morning and say, check in and say, hi, it's Joe. I'm calling to speak to my bail supervisor. And the supervisor ideally may help them to remember their court date. But uh, if you don't have a cell phone or you don't have their, you don't have access to a phone, then you might not be able to report. Or if you're suffering from addiction issues, then you might lose your paperwork and you might forget that you were supposed to report. So then you're going to be charged criminally for failing to report, and then you're going to have another bail hearing, at which point you'll probably be again told to report. And now you have a conviction on your criminal record for failing to report. So when someone comes for a bail hearing and I'm looking at their criminal record as one of the one of the things which helps me to understand whether or not they're releasable and a person has uh, a long history of breaching release conditions and those breaches are things like failing to report or uh, breaching a condition where they've been told that they can't consume intoxicating substances but they suffer from addiction issues so that condition set them up from for failure from the outset uh, they can end up not being released on bail for circumstances that were, you know, out of their control in a sense. And so I think Section 493.2 is designed to encourage myself and other decision makers to turn our minds to these types of considerations. That was a great explanation. Thank you so much. And... Could you speak a bit about bail rights under Section 11 of the Charter? So Section 11D of the Charter uh, speaks to the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. And so I think that goes to the idea that I mentioned under Section uh, 515.1, which says that, you know, an accused person should be released from custody unless there was some reason why they were not releasable, but the default of a bail hearing, given the presumption of innocence, should be that that they're releasable. And Section 11E of the Charter uh, speaks to the fact that uh, someone should not be denied reasonable bail without just cause, and that goes to both the form of their release. So uh, you, there's different types of release orders that someone could be released on. For example, uh, you could be released without any financial obligation, uh, but simply on a, on a court order that compelled you to attend court and obey any appropriate conditions. Or you could be released on a cash bail, and it could be, uh, we don't get to the types, of, the types of high cash bail amounts that you would associate with the United States but someone could be released on a, a thousand multiple 
$5,000 cash bail, depending on the circumstances. And so the form of release goes to the idea that no one should be released on a form of release that's not appropriate under the circumstances. So you shouldn't be released on cash bail if it's your first bail hearing. And, uh, you know, depending on the circumstances of the of the offense. Just to clarify, what is cash bail? Cash bail, there's either a no cash bail, meaning essentially, as I said, you're just you're released on a release order, compelled to attend court and obey any appropriate conditions. You can be released on a a no cash bail or a promise to pay bail. So that would be an amount of money that you'd be released on, but you wouldn't have to pay that money unless you failed to attend court or you breached any conditions of your release. It would be at that time that the Crown could try to collect that money. A cash bail would be an amount of money attached to your bail release, and you would not be released from custody until that money had been paid. So whether or not you were able to pay that yourself or you can find someone in your community who would be willing to show up and pay that bail on your on your behalf. I see. Then you said if it's your first bail hearing, there's no cash bail, right? You don't have to pay. Then who would get a cash bail? Like, what? why do I have to pay? Well, I mean, someone who's had a first, having a first bail hearing and who's charged with first degree murder, uh, who is seen as a flight risk. So they were, they aren't normally resident in Canada, for example. Uh, certainly, I think then they would be likely to be released on a cash bail simply because of the likelihood that they may not attend court or, you know, given the the nature of the, the charge before the court, uh, they would be seen as uh, potentially a risk to the public or the tertiary grounds could be engaged, noting that the public may be shocked if someone was released from custody uh, given, given the nature of those charges. Uh, or there's a case called Antic, a Supreme Court of Canada case, which uh, the Section 515 of the Criminal Code sets out the various forms of release, and they sort of they fall in an order which has been referred to as the bail ladder. So if you've been charged with a, a reasonably minor criminal offense, the default would be a no-cash, no-financial-obligations release. Uh, the next step up the bail ladder would be that you would be released on a promise to pay release order. If you then breached conditions of your release, you were charged with another indictable offense, you failed to attend court, you find yourself again before the court having a bail hearing. At that time, you could be released on a surety release. And a surety is essentially a, a person who's willing to step up and make themselves responsible for your court attendance and your your ability to comply with the conditions. And there could be a, there could be a financial amount attached to the surety, so meaning the surety would lose money if you breached the conditions or you didn't show up to court, or it could be a promise to pay amount attached to the surety, meaning that the Crown could try to collect that money, but it wouldn't necessarily occur. And then the last step on the ladder is, is a cash bail. You have to pay. You have to pay. And in Canada, uh, there's case law that uh, you can't be released on a cash bail unless you're able to pay that cash. Because effectively, if the Crown, you know, asks a person who doesn't have the means to pay a $1,000 cash bail, the, the effect of that is detention. 
So I can't, I can't release someone on a, on a form of release that in effect detains that person. So they either have to make an argument to me that that person should be detained or they have to agree to a no cash bail. A reasonable bail speaks to the form of release and also to reasonable conditions. So that, uh, so there's a case called uh, or R and Zora. And Zora articulates uh, is a Supreme Court of Canada case that really tries to clarify the idea that conditions should be are only appropriate in circumstances where they relate to the charges before the court. So conditions can't be imposed, say, um, you know, in an abundance of caution, for example. Uh, they can only be imposed in circumstances where they're required to address uh, concerns that the Crown might have in relation to the grounds for detention. So I think that that notion of uh, reasonable bail goes to the form of release and also the conditions of a release order. So now let's shift gears to speak about how bail works in practice. What are some examples of bail conditions that can be imposed on an accused? And what happens if someone fails to comply with their bail conditions? So examples of conditions, uh, there's many conditions that have been set, that are set out in Section 515, but uh, we can also, a justice of the peace or any other decision maker can impose any a con condition which is found appropriate in the circumstances, depending on the offense, the charges before the court. Uh, and very typical conditions would be, as I mentioned earlier, a reporting condition, uh, a, a reside condition, so requiring that they reside at a certain address. If you're charged with uh, an offense against another person, a vulnerable person, then a no contact condition with that individual and maybe a condition that you can't go to their residence or some other place where they might be found. Uh, and condition preventing you from being in possession of a weapon uh, or a firearm, depending on the offense before the court, uh, a curfew condition requiring you to stay in your home uh, for, you know, some, some period of time or potentially 24 hours a day, depending on the seriousness of the circumstances. So historically, have there been issues with the application of bail legislation in practice? And if so, which issues have arisen? I think there have been issues, certainly. Um, I think, uh, well, as I mentioned, the two cases, so Antic is a case that dealt with, I think the, the case ended up in front of the Supreme Court because of people being released on a cash bail. Uh, I think it was specifically in uh, the case, at least, dealt with uh, Ontario in circumstances that were not appropriate given the provisions in the criminal code in, in, in noting the bail ladder. Uh, the case of Zora, as I mentioned, dealt with uh, conditions and conditions being used appropriately given the language of the criminal code, uh, there, there has been, you know, bail has been 
or issues have arisen around the timeliness of a bail hearing and the idea that a bail hearing should occur, as I said, within 24 hours or when a justice of the peace is available. Those are some examples of, of circumstances, circumstances which have arisen. And has there been reform to the bail system since it was first introduced? Well, in, and I don't know, I don't have a lot of detail about this, but there was a Bail Reform Act in 1972, which I believe uh, codified in the code the reasons that might justify detaining someone. Uh, obviously, the charter, which uh, came into effect in 1982, would have had a, a great impact on the bail system. And then most recently, and I don't, I'd spill C-75, and I, I should know when it came in because I was a Justice of the Peace at the time. I want to say 2021. I don't know. Very recently. And Bill C-75 clarified the bail provisions, uh, streamlined them. Section 493.2 of the code came in in relation to vulnerable populations and Indigenous people. Uh, the principle of restraint was articulated, which really just uh, affirms that idea that, I, I guess it, it, it codifies in the criminal code uh, what I discussed in relation to Section 11E of the Charter. Um, and it also added provisions in relation to intimate partner violence, defining the term intimate partner and uh, essentially making it more, more likely that, a, that an individual who's been charged with intimate partner violence, who's previously been convicted of intimate partner violence would be detained. So our final question is, are there any common myths or misconceptions about bail that you would like to dispel for our listeners? You hear scary stories about people doing, causing harm and committing dangerous crimes. And so I think we have a common notion that a lot of individuals who are in the criminal justice system are, quote, like, bad guys. And uh, I, I've certainly come to recognize uh, the, the, that unpacking that is very, very complicated. And so I think, I don't know if I'd say it's a myth, but I, I think certainly, as I mentioned earlier, a, lo a lot of the people who are appearing for a bail hearing are uh, they, they've been accused of a crime. They don't match the types of stories that are causing people to push for bail reform. So whether or not that reform is needed or could be beneficial, uh, it's certainly, there's certainly a lot of cases of people being released on bail that are not, that don't match those stories. So thank you to the amazing Sarah Begg for joining us and sharing your insights. And of course, thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Have a great rest of your day. You are listening to the Hearsay Podcast. We are proud to present you with legal information, but please remember that this is legal information, not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. 
The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW 90.9 FM and Pro Bono Students Canada University of Calgary chapter. If you would like to hear more podcasts like this, The Hearsay Podcast can be found on Google Podcasts, Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.